Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm just standing on the bridge of a boat, of a ship, looking out on a, a perfectly smooth mirror-like surface of the sea as the moon rises over there in the uh, on the southeast horizon. I'm here during lockdown doing some social isolation on a big boat in the middle of the ocean by myself. Um, this episode of the History Hit podcast has got nothing whatsoever to do with maritime affairs. In fact, it's very land-based. We've got Damien Lewis back on the podcast. That historian just writes one best-selling smash hit about special forces in World War II after another. Well, he's only gone and done it again. This time he got a tip-off from a member of the public, one of his fans via social media. He got a tip-off, he looked into it, he pulled on that thread, and what do you know, there's another extraordinary story from the Second World War of what the Special Forces, the SAS, were getting up to after D-Day in France. It's a story of bravery, capture, luck, escape, revenge, heroism, you name it. It's got it all. You're going to absolutely love it. It's great to have Damien back on the podcast. Hundreds of you have entered our competition for £100 to spend in the shop. Please go to historyit.com slash quiz. It's all self-explanatory there. You get £100 and you can check out the absolutely bizarre History Hit shop while you're there. We're already running low on woolly medieval helmets with retractable face coverings. It's proving the absolute hot item on the shop this season. But in the meantime, everyone, enjoy this podcast with Damien Lewis. Damien, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. It's always good to be on the show and uh, glad it's still all going, all bells and whistles in this very difficult time we're all living through. Well, thank you very much indeed. And I just want to, well, well done to you as well. Just when you think there are no more stories to be told, about special forces in the Second World War. Here's this one. You've got a true band of brothers tale. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. And the way it came to me is, you know, one of those kind of unbelievable tales. It was a message over Facebook, a guy called James Irvin, who is a former military guy himself, but his grandfather, Trooper Packman, served in the SAS during the war. And he just sent me a quick message saying, look, you know, my grandfather was killed um, on SAS operations in France post D-Day. He was captured by the Gestapo and... 
you know, brutally put to death. And it's part of a wider story about these incredible missions deep behind the lines directly in the aftermath of D-Day to try to stop German armour getting to the D-Day beaches might be of interest. And so from there I started looking into it. And then, as you say, it just became this absolutely extraordinary tale which lasts from, you know, June 1944 all the way through again to the Nazi hunting operations post-war. So right the way through to 1947. You know, one of those really incredible tales where you follow these characters through just the most extraordinary missions and escapes and then of course the quest for vengeance and justice. So you mentioned the mission after D-Day. I mean you don't hear as much about special forces in summer of 1944 partly because it's a war of big battalions, it's a war of armoured divisions, things like that. But what was their job in France in the second half of 1944? They'd only ever existed overseas so they formed in North Africa then fought all through the North African campaign and then, of course, you know, the Mediterranean in Italy. And they were called back to the, to Britain for the first time in late 43, early 44. And they were headquartered in Darvel in Scotland and their mission was to get themselves in shape and undergo a massive recruitment drive to support the D-Day landings. So they came back to the UK, this piratical band of raiders, as they were described, with every conceivable nationality in their ranks and lots of eclectic collections of uniforms. And it didn't particularly go down very well. And as High Command tried to drag them kicking and screaming into line, spit and polish and tried to get them doing a bit of drill and all that kind of stuff, they were desperate to find a mission for D-Day which would suit a form of warfare which they didn't really understand. Many in the High Command didn't. And so they came up with this idea that they would deploy literally just hours before D-Day itself, and dropped slightly ahead of the landing beaches and act as a blocking group en masse, so 2,000, which is by now how much the ranks of the SAS had been swollen by recruits, so 2,000 of them would parachute in and basically act in static positions to, to as the immediate blocking group for the landings. And as Lieutenant Colonel Blair Paddy Main, who was in command of one SAS, and uh, William Sterling, who was in command of two SAS, having taken over from his brother David Sterling, when he was captured, said, that is not how we are used. We're dropped deep behind the lines, small bands of fast-moving raiders to harass and harangue and confound the enemy, and that's how we've always been used, and that's where we do our job best. And Bill Sterling, actually, Colonel Bill Sterling, actually had to fall on his sword and resign in protest at the continued insistence the SAS be used in this way, with the threat of further high-level reservations that eventually uh, High Command uh, gave in. And so a completely new set of missions were conceived of, which were archetypal SAS taskings, dropping deep behind the lines, deep into occupied France, to attack the railways, roads and road convoys, carrying German armour, the panzer divisions, to the D-Day beaches, which we knew is what Hitler would do. As soon as he knew where the landings were, he would rush his heavy armour to those areas to drive the Allies back into the sea. And so the SAS were charged to stop the armour getting through. And scores and scores of, of, of patrols were parachuted in France just after D-Day to achieve just that. This was an unprecedented territory in a way, because unlike the North African deserts, you know, France was densely populated, heavily occupied by the Germans, four years of occupation at least. You know, it was a very different uh, media to be dropping into and theatre. And I suppose one of the upsides was that, of course, via the special operations executive, you know, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare, we had good contacts and relations with the French resistance who Churchill had been urging uh, were armed as a guerrilla army to rise up in the enemy's rear. So 
the plan was really that you know that, that these these SAS patrols would parachute in, link up with the resistance, fight alongside them and give them the command, the control and extra firepower and the confidence to hit hard. So I suppose that made it slightly less daunting, if you like. All of your books seem to feature the most remarkable characters, but this particular drop had a real quality to it. Yeah, so the book focuses down onto one patrol. They're a patrol within an operation which was codenamed Operation Gain. It was one of these missions to destroy the German armour. And this patrol of 12 men were codenamed Sabu 70. They were dropped into an area just to the south of Paris, literally 20 miles, no more, to the south of Paris near the town of Douadon, to sabotage rail links and blow up this massive ammo dump that was situated on the fringe of the rail lines from where ammo was being rushed to the D-Day beaches. And the patrol was led by this fabulous and immensely brave and spirited individual called Captain Patrick Garstin. Now, Garstin had already won an MC in the retreat to Dunkirk in the rear guard. He'd been decorated in the field. He'd then been injured quite seriously trying to get off the DJ beaches. Miracle, he actually got off alive. He'd then come back to the UK, deployed to North Africa to join the East African campaign, still dogged by his injuries, and was eventually and ominously returned to the UK for Final disposal was what was written in his his orders, uh, i.e. I. to be invalided out of the military. Well, rather than being invalided out of the military, he volunteered for airborne training, trained as a parachutist, and then, after a stint with the Long Range Desert Group, actually volunteered for the SAS. So here you had a man, already one an MC, leading this patrol of 12 SAS deep into France, who actually should not have been in the military at all, let alone undergoing... Uh, and leading frontline operations. And he was the kind of individual who would only ever lead from the front. That was his nature. Uh, and indeed, he did throughout the whole of the operations. And then just to continue the theme, his second in command was a, was a Lieutenant John, nicknamed Rex Vihay, who was actually hailed from Mauritius, which was a uh, British and French Connolly. His ancestors were from Europe. And Vihay, likewise, had been serving in North Africa had volunteered for, for airborne duties, had trained with a parachute regiment and had had a parachuting accident and again had been banned from all further frontline duties. But when he was returned to the UK in early '44, had somehow managed to circumvent that, volunteer for the SAS. And as a fluent French speaker and a fluent English speaker, Vihay was welcomed into the SAS with open arms. So that's just two of the individuals, neither of whom should have been there, both of whom had been invalided out, certainly from frontline duties, but had refused not to serve at the sharpest end possible of operations. How does this operation go? So they're deployed initially to sabotage the rail and the ammo dumps, and it is a spectacular and resounding success. There's a Corporal Serge Vachelik, who is actually under Garstin, and he's originally of Czech origin, but a French citizen serving in the Free French SAS. And he walks into Doudin town, finds out where and when the next train is due. The whole patrol moves in at night. They stake it out. They kill the guards on the rail tracks. They plant these fog signals, these special SOE-developed charges, which enable a charge to blow up just in front of a train, so ensuring derailment. And then they plant around about 50 separate charges on, on this massive set of ammo dumps, all with four-hour delays, so they make sure they've got enough time to get away. And then they set up their ambush positions for the train, which duly comes steaming through out of the tunnel, at which stage the fog charges are detonated, the explosives uh, ignite, the train's blown to pieces, and 
the raiders attack it with their Bren guns and their Sten guns. There's then a massive firefight. And there's another standout individual in the patrol who's from Wigan, uh, a former miner from Wigan, and actually one of David Sterling's SAS originals, who's Corporal Thomas Ginger Jones. And he stands firm on the tracks with a Bren gun firing from the hip, uh, by which he enables the rest to get away, and he escapes also with just a flesh wound. And then, of course, they have a very, very, very angry and very, very vengeful enemy on, on their trail, especially as, three hours later, vast series of explosions and all the ammo dumps blow up. And so, all out of ammunition, not been able to link up with French resistance, so nowhere where they can go to ground and go into hiding. Garstang calls for, for rescue, and there was this policy developed before the, the post-E-Day operations went in that... If necessary, they would try to pluck out patrols using aircraft by airborne means. Now, of course, the SOE had long experience of delivering agents into the field by the Lysander light aircraft and, and collecting them again. So it was a variation on that theme. So Garstner radios uh, Darvel headquarters and asks for pickup rescue. And the reply he gets is not quite what they expected. It's, yes, we'll come and get you. We'll send in an RAF air crew and they're going to land at Etomp Airfield, which is just nearby. Now, Etomp Airfield was a very significant Luftwaffe airbase. So significant was it that the Allies had mounted half a dozen very significant bombing raids to try to destroy it over the past few weeks, none of which had been very successful. And so, lo and behold, the Sabre 70 patrol were ordered to make their way to Etomp Airbase that night to get rescued from the airstrip by a C-47, a Dakota aircraft flying in with an RAF aircrew, a very brave RAF aircrew, it has to be said, who were determined to pluck them out of there. Quite extraordinary. Is this a particularly unusual raid, or is this just an operation that you were given this entree into? Do you think there were things like this going on all the time, most of which will now be pretty much forgotten to history? This is an extraordinary rescue. They're pulled out of that airbase by that C-47, and not under fire, a massive firefight. They fight their way onto the aircraft, and, and they get airborne, airborne and get back to the UK. It's an extraordinary rescue, and before getting rescued, indeed, they plant the last of their charges on some of the aircraft on the airstrips to actually blow it up as they fly out of there. But having said that, Dan, there were scores of such missions taking place all across France. SAS and other related units and you could take any number of them and they would be equally brave and fearsome and diehard. What makes this mission so extraordinary and what, why I decided to focus on it is what happens to them during their next mission and which leads on to the whole Nazi hunting operations through 1945 post-war and it's that combination of factors, that cradle to the grave aspect of this story, which really makes it stand out. Tell me about what happens later in the war. They get back to the UK on C-47 and ironically, bizarrely, but I guess you can understand the reasoning, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Blair Main, who's their, the commander of 1SAS and very much involved in this mission personally, says to them, look, you've been into a Torn Bear base and you've got extracted from there. Well, we want to send you back again to the very same place to destroy it. And the reason being... There have been all these RAF and US Air Force bombing raids. None have been successful. And by the way, when they were being extracted from the airbase, they actually came across these camouflage forests. So if you can imagine trees made out of wood and chicken wire with forced leaves stretched over them, there were these camouflage forests absolutely convincing from the air, which explained why the Allied air raids had scored very few successes, because the aircraft were so well hidden. Well, British intelligence have worked out that Atomp Air Base was one of the first air bases to get the Luftwaffe's first jet fighter, so the first operational jet fighter 
of the entire war, the Sturmvogel. And so they're sent back in again to destroy the airbase and take out some of these groundbreaking aircraft. And they're going to be dropped close by in an area of dense forest at a drop zone at a small village called La Ferte LA. And SOE have arranged for them to link up with a band of French resistance fighters on the ground so they'll have a reception party, in theory. In practice, what's happened is that the SOE, I guess you could say, has been penetrated by the Gestapo. And there's a very wily and canny Gestapo commander in Paris at their headquarters at 84 Avenue Fock called Hans Kiefer who's defected what they called the Funkspiel, the radio games. And the radio games were, they would capture an SOE agent in France, male or female, hopefully capture their radio kit and their codebooks and their ciphers, turn that captured agent by obvious means, and then use that agent to play back messages to the UK as if that agent was still freely operating in the field with the aim of calling in more agents and more airdrops of weaponry and more airdrops of supplies and even cash. And that was the Funkspiel games. And Captain Gastin and his men have very sadly fallen victim to a Funkspiel. So when they fly back in again in July now to deploy to La Fertile drop zone and then attack a Tombert base, actually, who's waiting for them on the ground is not the French resistance at all. It's a party of Gestapo from Paris and a body of Waffen-SS soldiers in ambush position. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I guess there's no getting out of that situation. Not for most of them, no, unfortunately. So Garstan is the first out, first down. He, as I said, led from the front, as always. Shadowy figure runs up to him dressed in civilians. He presumes it's a member of the French resistance, and the man does indeed shout out, Vive la France. But as he gets close enough to Garstan to whisper, he says, beware, there are Bosch Germans all around. And as he leads uh, Garstan into the trees, the enemy come out of the shadows with their weapons and Garstan is captured. He tries to break away to warn his men and they shoot him down and he's very, very grievously injured. 
If you could imagine jumping out of a fast-moving Sterling bomber in a 12-man stick, even though you jump very closely together, you would be spread out a long way along the ground. Because of that, the last three parachutists don't land in the open field of the drop zone. They land in the forest. Those three get away for that reason and that reason only. But the rest are all either captured, injured very badly and captured, or killed. And some of them, Ginger Jones in particular, basically fight to the last round and it's dawn before the last ones are brought in. And then the wounded and those who are without wounds are loaded aboard a truck and driven to Paris. The wounded taken to the Hospital Salpetriere in Paris, given no treatment whatsoever and immediately face Gestapo interrogations. And just to give you an idea of how brutal this is, Lieutenant Vihay, who I mentioned earlier, the chap who shouldn't have been there at all because he was invalided out of the war, supposedly, uh, he's been shot three times once in the spine and he's paralysed from the waist down. Yet even so, within hours of arriving at the hospital, he's got a Gestapo interrogator at his bedside, beating him around the face and even threatening, if he doesn't talk, to get the surgeons to remove his bullets without anaesthetic. So this is pretty brutal stuff. And what are the Gestapo after? Well, it's two things. They're after obviously finding out what their mission was and where there might be other SAS parties deploying in France. But more importantly, they're after launching another Funkspiel operation. So they want to find out who in their parties in charge of communications, where the radio is, where the cipher books are, so they can try and use the captured SAS men to lure in more and more airdrops to capture more and more operators and individuals. And of course, those able-bodied men who've been captured are then taken to the the Gestapo headquarters at Avenue Fock, 84 Avenue Fock, and they then go into horrific torture and questioning to try to find out the self-same things. How do we know about this? Well, we know about it from a lot of different sources. I have been so privileged and so fortunate and so honoured in telling this story is the help from the families of those who were there. So I'll just give you some examples. Lieutenant Vihay's family, who are in Mauritius, lovely people, so helpful. Now, I didn't know, of course, when I started researching it, but not only did he write up an account of his war in French, which they sent to me, it's, it's book length, but he kept a notebook all through the war. So even when he was in the field, even on this operation, he kept the notebook, so a diary of his operations. They shared that with me. They shared letters between him and all his family members, between him and the fellow members of his patrol. Sean Garstin, the son of Patrick Garstin, the patrol commander, one year old when his father was captured, never got to know his father because Garstin was killed at the end of this capture. But Sean, again, who lives in Nairobi in Kenya, immensely helpful, shared with me the family's memorabilia, photographs, letters, medals, everything they have, uh, you know, that you would bring down from a loft in any normal family situation. And the same across so many other members of the patrol. And without that, it's pretty much almost impossible now to tell these kind of stories. And then finally, I guess, to as the icing on the cake, there's still surviving a wonderful SAS veteran, Jack Mann, who is in his late 90s, who read a very early draft of the manuscript for me to just check the authenticity and the tone was right and sent me back his handwritten notes in pencil, having read it from cover to cover. You know, you pull a team like that together, you really can capture these stories and bring them back alive, which is what one tries to do. You mentioned many of them didn't make it back alive. What was the circumstances of their death? So they're being held in the 184 Avenue Falcon in the hospital and Kiefer, the head of the Gestapo, contacts Berlin and says, what do I do with them? And Hitler himself gets involved and he sends an order to Kiefer. These men are to be executed. 
they are to be dressed in civilian clothes, taken to a patch of woodland and killed. Now, Hitler took very personally, as, as a personal insult to himself and the Reich behind the lines operations, whether it be by the SOE, the OSS, the American equivalent, SAS commandos, parachutists, whoever. Partly it's because we did launch quite a few assassination operations. Reinhard Heydrich comes to mind in Prague, Czechoslovakia, Operation Anthropoid. The many assassination attempts in North Africa and Europe against Rommel, of course, but there were others too. And Hitler felt these were a personal affront, an insult to himself and his top leaders. And so much earlier than the Sabi 70 patrols capture, he had authored his commando order under which he gave authority, illegally of course, for any captured commandos, that all of them had to be killed and could only be kept alive for long enough for their questioning interrogation by the Gestapo. And so he orders the, the, the Gaston and his captured men to similarly be killed. And they are, in early August, forced to dress in civilian clothing. And when they challenge why, they're told there's a prisoner exchange taking place in Geneva and they're going to be trucked to Geneva to be exchanged with German prisoners being handed over by the British. Of course... Uh, very few of them believe it, and especially because as they put the civilian clothing on at gunpoint, some of them can see that these clothes, or some of the clothes at least, already have bullet holes in them. And that evening they're driven out into a patch of French woodland, and Gaston, who is very, very seriously injured uh, still, has had no treatment for his injuries, but is an extremely honourable man, and has believed you know, Kiefer's assurances that they are going to be subjected to a prisoner exchange. When they're marched into the woodland at gunpoint and begin to get lined up, he realises what's really going to happen. He turns to his men and says, my God, they're going to shoot us. And he says, I will stand firm and you guys make a break for it. By which he means, I'm too injured to get away, but some of you aren't. I'll stand and take the fire and you get away. And that's exactly what happens. As Schnur, who is the um, SS commander of the, the execution squad, pulls out a piece of paper and starts to read out Hitler's execution sentence in German, and then has von Capri, his second-in-command, translate it into English. As they hear, hear the final word, sentence to be shot, Jones and Vachulik, the former miner from Wigan and the Czech Free French SAS man, break free and charge their would-be gunmen, their would-be assassins, and both of them manage to run some distance away before their ill-fitting civilian shoes force them or make them trip up, fall over their own feet. And as both go crashing down, volleys of fire break out, including going over their heads. And it's actually their falling down that saves them. Otherwise, they would doubtless have been shot. Vakalik gets back on his feet and runs again and is pursued by the, the executioners. Uh, and Schnur, the SS commander, realises that if any of these seven get away, there will be hell to pay for them in Berlin because it's on pers Hitler's personal orders that they are supposed to be executed. So the hunt is underway. Jones, meanwhile, lays still and plays dead. And when the gunmen have run off, when the executioners have run off after Vachelik, he gets to his feet, dashes away and manages to hide himself under some leaves. And so those two individuals, Corporals Vachelik and Jones, do escape. And that night and over the next few days, they're both reunited with each other and they link up with the French resistance. And so begins the next chapter of the story where Vachelik and Jones train 
and call in arms drops to the local Brestless, that's the name of the nearest town resistance, in preparation for the American advance when they will rise up in the enemy's rear and ensure that Brestless is liberated. And that's exactly what they do. But it's interesting, Dan, when they escape that firing squad, and, and you know, read about the escape, it's miraculous, it's almost unbelievable. When they escape, and, and when they're asked what drove them to what drove them on with the bullets at their back, it's not just the animal instinct to survive. It's perhaps even more so. It was the desire to get vengeance and justice for their murdered comrades because they knew that the other men were getting gunned down where they stood at their backs. And so, when they eventually liberate Brestless Town, Vakulik and Jones then get in the mayor's car, drive back to the site of their executions, collect bullet cases at the very site where they should have died, and then go to the nearby chateau, the Chateau Parisis-Fontaine, where the five who had been gunned down were buried in a mass grave, and they find the location of that mass grave. And so begins this investigation into these war crimes, which, as I say, lasted to 1947 and ends up in, in vengeance and justice being done. The SAS became more and more aware that, you know, Hitler's commander order must exist and indeed eventually copies were found and they knew that hundreds of their men had been captured and disappeared. And so both Maine and, and Colonel Franks vowed that, that the perpetrators would be hunted down and brought to justice. So they set up a, a, an official SAS war crimes investigation team towards the end of the war, dispatched them to France and Germany to investigate. And it was headed up by the peerless and brilliant Major Eric Bill Barkworth, an SAS intelligence officer, fluent German speaker and fearsome interrogator. Any German who met Barkworth knew they had more than met their match. Barkworth takes over a former Nazi official's villa in Gaggenau, the German city near the French border, and together with his second-in-command, the extremely tough and resilient Dusty Rhodes, his sergeant, they start hunting down the suspects. Now... The problem is this. SAS, as I said earlier, was never particularly popular with some in the high command, some in the establishment, as were some of the other special forces units. And by October 1945, the writings on the wall and the SAS is formally disbanded, told to destroy all documents and all records and return to their units. That's it. End of the regiment as we knew it. And there are some, a Colonel Maine and Colonel Franks, first and foremost, commanders of one and two SAS, and Winston Churchill himself, voted out of power, but still, of course, extremely powerful and influential, who are determined this will not happen. And so the one thing they keep alive, and they are determined to keep alive at all cost, is the Nazi hunting team. And so the SAS war crimes investigation team goes dark. It goes completely unofficial. It becomes known as the secret hunters. They're funded out of a black budget, massaged out of the war office so the war office isn't aware where the money's actually going and they're controlled by a clandestine radio set perched on the roof of a building in Eaton Square which gives them their orders from London and it's a completely off the books operation amazingly they recruit more SAS to it and they are hiding in plain sight so they're operating the length and breadth of Europe of former German occupied Europe they're driving old SAS jeeps. They're wearing the SAS cap badge, the wind beret. They're dressed in uniform. They are masquerading as if they have every right to be there. And indeed, they are one of the most successful war crimes hunting operations ever. And they are, in large part, because, Dan, they're willing to break all the rules. You know, they don't seek permission 
when they are crossing from one zone of occupation to another, because they know if they seek permission, then a warning might get through to the man they're after. They use their jeeps and the back roads, they circumvent the checkpoints, they arrive on the suspect's doorstep in the middle of the night unannounced, and they address him in his pyjamas or his underpants. These are snatch missions, and they're extremely successful. The culprits are dragged back to the Villa Degla basement, and there they are interrogated by Barkworth and... Very few, if any, any, don't break very, very quickly. And it's in that process that Barkworth realises there is this individual, Hans Kiefer, the chief of the Gestapo from Paris, who then came back through the Vogue Mountains to Strasbourg as Nazi Germany forces retreated uh, from the Allies, and that he is responsible for scores of atrocities against captured Allied agents, SAS, SOE, including those wanted for what became known as the Noales Wood killings, the killings of our Sabu 70 patrol, Garstan and his men. And it's a strange thing because at the end of the war, the SS itself was rightly made an illegal uh, organisation and any SS were slated for arrest and questioning and potentially trial. And so Kiefer and his second in command, Hogg and others know that they're being sought and so they go into hiding and Kiefer and Hogg go to a Bavarian ski resort and get casual jobs as hotel cleaners and that's where they're going to hide out but Hogg who has five children decides one day he cannot not go and visit his family and Kiefer warns him if you go home they're going to be watching you'll get captured and you may give me away Hogg goes anyway and lo and behold Barkworth's men are watching they arrest Hogg and in questioning Hogg, who'd been held as a prisoner of war by the British during World War One, he's an old soldier and was treated very well. So whose allegiances are torn anyway, Hogg confesses all. And he says, I think you might find Kiefer, who's their number one wanted in this ski resort in Bavaria. And in that way, all of the suspects who haven't been killed in the war are brought into custody give their confessions and stand trial at Wuppertal in the summer of 1947 and they're all sentenced either to death or to long custodial sentences. So the justice and the vengeance which um, Ginger Jones and Serge Vachelik uh, sought as they escaped has finally been served. Good luck. The book is called? SAS Band of Brothers. Boom. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small, windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it if you could give it a review i really appreciate that then from the comfort of your own homes you'll be doing me a massive favor then more people will listen to the podcast we can do more and more ambitious things and i can spend more of my time getting pummeled thank you when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.